The story of Barry and Honey Sherman, whose murders nearly three years ago remain unsolved, has taken another twist. The fight over the couple's estate hit the Supreme Court. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. National Post crime reporter Adrian Humphreys joins me to talk about how an inheritance proceeding wound up at the nation's highest court, why the family is fighting to have these records kept private, and what the legal implications of this case could be. Don't forget, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It'd be great if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, Adrian, we're coming up on three years since Barry and Honey Sherman were murdered in their homes. For those who may not remember, who were they and what were the circumstances around their deaths? Honey and Barry Sherman were giants in Canada and uh, in several fronts. Barry Sherman, at 75 years of age, he started uh, Apotex, a generic drug manufacturing that became an international success. Huge, huge. Billionaire company, uh, billionaire family, and very, very well known. Uh, Honey Sherman was very involved in the community and philanthropy. They were sort of a high society couple hosting fundraisers for politicians and donating millions for wings of hospitals and colleges. And they really were amongst Canada's wealthy and social elites. And that made it particularly shocking and distressing and particularly intense public focus uh, when they were found dead inside their mansion in Toronto under very sad, tragic, and bizarre circumstances. They were tethered, had a belt tethered around their neck, and were slung over a very low railing by their indoor pool in the basement in a seated position. When the news first broke, the Toronto police intimated that it may have been a murder-suicide. The family went nuts on that, and the further investigation, police then retrenched and came forth that they had both been basically strangled mm -hmm. and that it was a targeted double murder of this couple inside their home in Toronto on December 15th, 2017. Yeah, as you mentioned pretty quickly, this case was surrounded by secrecy and controversy and, and there were questions of how police handled the case with the insistence early on that it was a murder-suicide and then the family brought in a private investigation why is a case like this so fraught? Well, part of it is the, the family has tremendous resources and tremendous sensitivities over it. It really was a convergence of several things. Like, you know, so Barry Sherman was a controversial figure. He was personally very delightful, people who, who liked him, but he was very rough around the edges, irascible. He was highly litigious. He had uh, an unbelievable number of lawsuits. Uh, his business practices were very aggressive. He had a lot of enemies, in other words. Mm -hmm. Honey on the other side of the equation was the, the exact opposite. She was delightful and wonderful and everyone loved her. And there was sort of that dynamic of, uh, of the whodunit. The family has tremendous resources and were very skeptical. I mean, the police got off the wrong foot with suggesting this murder-suicide. I don't think the family had any confidence or trust in the Toronto police from that point on. And mm -hmm. they funded an incredible shadow investigation. They hired former Toronto police homicide detectives to sort of do their own investigation. They insisted on and hired, you know, a coroner to do a second autopsy on the couple. I mean, everything that the police would do, and in fact, probably more than the police would do, they had this private group led by a prominent former detective and a very prominent lawyer. And so every step of the way, 
There was something that smelled a little weird. There was something that was controversial. There was something that was unusual. It certainly wasn't your typical homicide investigation in Toronto or anywhere else for that matter. Now, the latest twist in this case surrounds the couple's estate and the couple's files and inheritances. What is the issue with that part of this case? It's the quintessential whodunit, right? So everyone wants to know possible motives, possible suspects. Reporters, myself included, uh, went to try and get the uh, estate files. When I got to the estate files, I'd found that they had been sealed. And in fact, another reporter, Kevin Donovan from the Toronto Star, had been there first. And he was already in the process of seeking to have this controversial, very unusual sealing order on an estate file overturned. And the family, again, very well funded, has a great war chest, um, has a great deal of experience in litigation. They litigated this to the maximum degree as well. So what we found is that it eventually came to the Supreme Court of Canada. And, you know, that's already a little odd to have a, what is it be in normal circumstances, a, a routine probating of uh, last wills and testament in the states of a dead couple now being litigated at the highest court in the land with uh, interveners from Ontario, from BC, from civil liberties groups, from other special interest groups, from media consortiums. It's really become a bizarrely big, strange, and more convoluted twists to this important murder mystery. What was the process to get it to the Supreme Court? I assume there was a judge that ruled it gets sealed and then was it an appeal court that overturned the sealing order and then the Shermans appealed to the Supreme Court? Is that how it went? Basically. But what was unusual about this, again, was that most people open a probate case, probate file, and then if they have some concerns, they would go to a judge and then sort of have the thing retroactively sealed. That didn't happen in this case. In this case, there was a court hearing and, you know, I'd even go so far as to say a secret court hearing because media was not notified of this, that there was going to be this request. Uh, you know, they basically said, we want to open this file, but we'd like the judge to seal it before it's even entered into court. And they made those arguments in private in the sense that there was no one knew it was happening. Typically in Ontario, the media get notification of publication ban requests and sealing orders so that if we wish to dispute them or fight them, we can have our attorneys proceed along that. That never happened. It wasn't until reporters went to the estate court and requested these files that we even learned that the sealing file was in, in place. And then we had to go through the process. When I say we, I mean, it was Kevin Donovan, the Toronto Star at first, that uh, then objected to that the judge that made the sealing order. He upheld it, then it went to the Court of Appeal and so forth, up to the Supreme Court. And what is the family arguing in terms of keeping all of this sealed and away from public view? There was uh, you know, several uh, arguments being made, but the two primary ones that seemed to attract the most attention with the justices was their privacy concerns. So there's an argument that this should be a private matter in a private moment. That there's no real public interest. That the public's interest in what may contain in the files is just puerile interest because of their wealth and because of the fact that they were murdered. The other attack on it is that they say that uh, their safety and security is at risk that the files contain names and addresses of beneficiaries and trustees that are handling the division of their assets and inheritance. 
and this information could put them at risk because, well, there's a murderer on the loose of their parents and grandparents and so forth, of the various relationships of people named in those files. And that became quite contentious because what evidence is there that they're at any danger? Basically, there was no evidence put forth. Mm-hmm. In fact, there was a Toronto police detective, the one detective that's been assigned working full-time on this since it's happened, said that they have no concerns about the files being open and that they're unaware of any threats or risk, which then it becomes, you know, as the justice was asking, this is a theoretical risk. Yeah. So those were the sort of the issues that were being bantered about. Now, it wasn't just the family that was supporting the privacy rights. There were some advocacy groups for sort of low-income and vulnerable litigants that thought that it might be very well for people in the Sherman's position to be able to hire top lawyers to get judges to consider sealing orders and confidentiality orders, but but not everyone. In fact, most people aren't in that position. And that the idea that the judge should have some leeway in, uh, in privacy matters and in protecting some privacy of sensitive medical information and so forth might be a good idea. So it wasn't uh, just, you know, solely the Sherman family that was making these arguments. So essentially it comes down to a family should have a right to privacy in a matter of files of this nature and inheritances and estates. And on the flip side, the argument is that doing so would go against the whole concept of open courts, right? Correct. When someone enters into a a court proceeding, there is a presumption that what happens is publicly on the record. I mean, that's fundamental to, uh, you know, when we did away with star chambers and private justice. Um, It has to be, our case law shows, uh, the presumption being that it'll be open until and unless a judge finds some specific defensible reasons of why certain things or aspects of it might be closed. That's why we have things like sort of publication bans and restrictions on like naming minors or the victims of sexual assault or things of that nature that um, are usually dealt with case by case, but also very, you know, a scalpel. Maybe this home address doesn't need to go out instead of what's been sought here, which is wholesale sealing of an entire file. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the Supreme Court uh, maintains the sealing order, uh, or I guess uh, re- reattaches the sealing order, uh, well, you know, we may never know the, even the types of contents that's there. Despite the fact this revolves around one particular set of files in one particular murder case, this could have broader implications for how courts operate across the country. Correct. Yeah, I mean, basically, the Sherman's lawyers were, it was characterized at the Supreme Court this as turning on its head the prospect of open courts, that the presumption of openness might not be there, that the presumption would be privacy, and that people might have to go to court to have them opened or have what is normally public information lifted. I mean, it really could fundamentally rewrite that open courts principle. And that was very much the concern expressed by civil liberties groups and the media groups that were arguing before the Supreme Court. What about the justices? What were they saying about just the case in general? I know they, they've reserved their decision and we'll hear that at some point down the road, but what were they saying about the case? Well, this is one aspect I found quite remarkable because Supreme Court hearings are always kind of fun to watch because they're very well briefed. The, you know, tons of material go in into the file ahead of time and the judges are you know, intimately familiar with the legal arguments. And, but the lawyers go up and they, they make the oral arguments, which are often highlights of the filed material. Justices, Supreme Court justices for a reason, they're very good at understanding that. So they, they frequently, I mean, not, not unique to this case at all, sort of interrupt the lawyers, peppers you know, them with the specific questions. They want to get the information in a limited amount of time that they feel they need, as opposed to what, not necessarily what the... Uh, Applicants or respondents want to say. So that, that was normal. But this case um, was kind of funny. I, I use that term respectfully. 
because of the uh, high interest, because of the mystery, because of the secrecy, they seem to be sort of engaging to a certain degree into the same sort of chatter you you might get in Toronto high society about this. You know, that one judge was hypothesizing that it must be a very sophisticated group that they engage in this, and it was a very, very sophisticated crime. You know, that was in the context of a legal argument. And another one was lamenting, you know, like, we know nothing when someone said something about, well, we know this. And he said, well, we know nothing about this case. We don't know who did it. We don't know the motive. We don't know the names of the assassins. And uh, it was uh, quite a remarkable sort of display that I felt really highlighted all the things that are unusual about this case to begin with. The heightened concern, the heightened conjecture, the heightened mystery, um, and, and perhaps even some frustration over a lack of progress and an abundance, an overabundance, uh, it could be said, uh, of secrecy. And, and, you know, arguably a very important case for all kinds of reasons. Talking about what we know and what we don't know about the police investigation, in December it will be the third anniversary of their deaths. Do we have any sense that police are closer to knowing who did this or have suspects in mind, or is it still, the judges say, a a huge mystery? Uh, Well, there's two ways of looking at that. As part of this process, uh, the police detective at a lower court uh, segment uh, leading up to the Supreme Court was cross-examined about the investigation. And and he said that Toronto Police had a pretty good idea. They have a theory of the case. And they seem to suggest that uh, some significant forward momentum, at least on having a suspect or suspects, as opposed to uh, evidence that uh, would lead to an arrest. I mean, they're Clearly has been no arrest. Uh, Toronto police told me yesterday that it remains an active and open investigation, that they have an officer assigned to it working full-time, but other officers assist um, when needed as they you know, juggle a fairly heavy caseload in Toronto. And, and then, of course, there's still this $10 million reward offer put out by the family that was helping to draw someone out in the community that may know something either about the murders or the murderers. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be still an enticing offer that uh, remains unclaimed. It is an interesting update on a case that caught the attention of many people across this country. Adrian, thanks for your time. You're very welcome. Thanks for your interest. 103 is produced by Carson Jarama, theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Adrian Humphreys. More from him at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Thank you.